Morning, everyone. Thank you, Lion. Uh, good morning. My name's Andy, one of the pastors here on the team uh, at Church by the Bridge. It's good to see you. Um, we've praised God in song, we've heard his voice, and we've asked for God's help to understand his words. So now we're going to spend the next uh, 20 minutes looking at this parable. We've been working our way through uh, parables in Luke's biography of Jesus' life. So if you close your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And before we look at that parable, I want to start by telling you about a man uh, called Kyle MacDonald. Now, Kyle MacDonald is a man who turned a red paper clip into a house. It's an incredible story. He basically went on this mad trading frenzy. So he traded a paper clip for a pen. He traded a pen for a doorknob. He put, traded a doorknob for a camp stove, a camp stove for a generator, a generator for a keg of beer, a keg of beer for a snowmobile, a snowmobile for a holiday. He traded the holiday for a truck. He traded a truck for a music recording contract. He traded the music recording contract for a year's rent, the year's rent for an afternoon with Alice Cooper. And he traded the afternoon with Alice Cooper for a kiss snow globe. The snow globe for a role in a movie. And on the 5th of July, 2006, he traded the movie role for a two-story farmhouse in Kipling, Canada. It's incredible, isn't it? Remarkable. He took an incredible story. He took the opportunity to trade what he had in the present for gain in the future. And that's where our passage takes us today. That's where this parable takes us today. As I said, we've been looking at the parables in Luke's biography of Jesus' life. They are stories that Jesus told to teach us something about himself and his kingdom. And um, today, in today's parable, we're told that we, uh, the principle that drives today's parable is that we are to trade now All that God has given us in life, our money, our time, and our passion, so that people will hear about Jesus and go to heaven. We've seen in the last uh, three parables, we've seen God's core business is saving lost, sinful people from hell for heaven. We saw it in those three beautiful parables parables that we dipped into last week, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And this week, Jesus turns from telling those three parables uh, to the Pharisees of the day, the religious leaders of the day, and he turns, verse 1, and he invites his disciples, those who follow Jesus, to invest in his core business of seeking and saving the lost. He invites you and I to become shrewd traders, traders of all that we have now for future friends in heaven. That's how verse 9 puts it. And it's really an extraordinary invite. It's an extraordinary invite. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, you have been invited to be personally involved in God's work of seeking and saving the lost. If you're a follower here of Jesus, you are directly responsible for people hearing the good news of Jesus so that they won't go to hell, so that they will go to heaven. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. Uh, As we look at this parable, I hope you'll see just how much God loves you, how much he has invested in you. Uh, how much he's invested in you 
in giving the life of his son Jesus in history to die on a cross so that we would know him now, know the joy of serving him now and spend eternity with him in the future. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what uh, floats the boat of Christians. He has put, if you're not a Christian, he has put Christians in your life so that they might splash their cash and make every effort so that you would come to know the saving news of Jesus Christ and know eternity with God in heaven. Now, we're talking about money this morning, and I know when pastors talk about money, uh, you're immediately thinking, oh, Andy's going to try and hit us up for some more money for the new toilet block. Uh, I didn't choose the parable. We're going through these stories. Um, uh, But what this parable does is it goes way beyond just generosity, way beyond just generosity. It's a call to scheme and plot with all of our money, all of our time, all of our hearts, all of our thinking, all of our shrewdness, so that people would hear about Jesus. Now, we have benefited greatly from people who have done that in the past. The English Bibles that you've got open in front of you, uh, they, uh, we have those uh, largely down to a bloke called Humphrey Monmouth. Uh, he schemed and he spent his money and he put his life in danger uh, so that William Tyndale could translate the original Hebrew and Greek into English. This church building that we're meeting in uh, this morning is thanks to the scheming and the generosity of the people of North Sydney who wanted people like us to hear about Jesus. Uh, we've got full-time pastors who teach the Bible and study the Bible rather than going out to work uh, to feed their kids because of the generosity of people like you who scheme and plot and want to hear people, uh, want people to hear about Jesus. And that's really what Christians are called to do in this parable. We're called to partner with God, to make every effort to scheme and plot and be generous so that people will hear about Jesus and go to heaven. I wonder how you feel about uh, your part in that plan. I hope it excites you that God would use our money and our material possessions in his business of seeking and saving the lost. He doesn't need to. He can save people however he likes, but he chooses to use all that he has already given us in his business of seeking and saving the lost. Now, my guess is is that we probably get more excited uh, by the paperclip getting turned into the house. Uh, We've been excited recently by hearing a story of a couple in Sydney who reinvented the, the, the stick that you throw to a dog. How would you reinvent a stick that throws to a dog? Well, uh, dogs get impaled on sticks, so they invented a rubber stick. They are now millionaires because they reinvented uh, the stick. That's what we've been excited at the minute. But Luke puts this parable in his gospel. Jesus says this story so that we would get excited about God's core business and so get behind it with our cash with our efforts and with our scheming. So let's have a look at this parable and hope you can see that's where we're going. So verses 1 to 7 are the parable and 8 to 13 are Jesus' application of that parable. 
Now, I wonder whether you noticed as the parable was read out, it's rather an obscure parable, isn't it? The commentators tell you how difficult this parable is. Uh, Verse 1, there's a rich man and there is a dodgy manager. Rich men in Luke's gospel are also dodgy. If you know anything about Luke's biography of Jesus' life, uh, rich men are dodgy geezers. Uh, Rich men in... um, The manager is dodgy. He is responsible for looking after the rich man's estate and his belongings. But he's been smashing too much on the company credit card. Too many lunches, helicopters to meetings, champagne Fridays for him and the team. And he's been rumbled. He's been rumbled. And he's going to get fired. That's the tension that we get in the parable. In verse 3, he says these words. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm, uh, I'm too, ash- uh, too ashamed to beg. That could totally be my words. Um, and so he comes up with this plan to save his bacon and to stop himself from going homeless. That's what we get in verses uh, 5 to 7. And in verses 5 to 7, he shaves off the debts of people who owe his master money. How much do you owe him? 100, I'll take 50. How much do you owe him? 100, I'll take 80. Pretty dodgy, right? Really dodgy. Now, I wonder whether you noticed the weird bit. Do you notice the weird bit in verse 8? Let me read verse 8 and we can all look at it together. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. Why would he do that? Why would he praise his dodgy manager for his dodginess? And uh, greater still, why would Jesus implicitly endorse the behavior of this manager. Now, the commentators go to town on this. Uh, was he skimming off the interest? Was he just discounting his commission? Uh, it's difficult, isn't it? I don't know whether you've got any theories on that. Now, what is clear is that Jesus is not saying that tomorrow morning you can go off and rip off your clients and empty out the office stationary cupboard, sell it and give your money for a new hand dryer in the toilet block. Jesus is not saying that. Don't go ripping off your clients and your office. Uh, But what Jesus is saying and what he is commending is this manager's shrewdness. He says that, doesn't he? He commends him for his shrewdness. And what he's commending is uh, that the manager is using his present opportunities for future gain. So in light of this future crisis, he's going to get fired. He used the means at his disposal in the presence to get in the present to get out of this sticky situation. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, we need to remember he's talking to his disciples, is he's saying that if this dodgy manager can get this, and if this rich man, remember rich men are dodgy geezers in Luke's gospel, if this rich man and this dodgy manager can get this principle... How much more then should the followers of Jesus get this? How much more should the followers of Jesus use in the present the opportunities put before them for future gain? Uh, what's that future gain? Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, what's, he says for, for the future gain of seeing people to heaven. I think that's what uh, the second half of verse 8 is getting at. He says, for the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. So just like uh, the manager knew that the boss was returning and so worked hard to save his bacon, 
So the followers of Jesus, that's the sons of light, should know a day is coming when God will return to judge the earth and destroy his enemies, those that don't recognize him, don't live under his lordship. And so followers of Jesus make every effort to save the bacon of the people around us. Now that kind of thinking goes way beyond just chucking the loose change into the velvet bag at the end of the service, doesn't it? When we think about saving the bacon of those around us, those that God has put in our lives, it pushes us into areas to plot and to scheme and to use all the resources at our disposal so that people would hear about Jesus and be saved. It also means that we need to be shrewd. We need to be creative and innovative. Anyone know our mission statement? to make disciples who will innovatively take the gospel to our networks, our neighborhoods, our neighborhood and the nations. That's to innovatively take the gospel. And that's what this parable charges us to do. I'm encouraged to see that happening around the place. There's a guy at 3.30 Church who plays soccer, and he used his love of soccer, uh, his love for Jesus, and his wealth so that 80 kids could hear about Jesus a couple of Saturdays ago. I love that uh, Margaret has got a passion uh, for seeing dancers hear about Jesus. She, She uses her passion for dancing, her love for Jesus, and her purse. I know she went to great expense to put on the ball lately. So that people could hear about Jesus. There were lots of stories of generosity that I could share with you, stories of innovation, So let me ask you, how can you use the resources that God has given you to facilitate people hearing about Jesus? A bit later on, the kids are going to be brainstorming how they might get people to hear Jesus. They're going to have lots of fun doing that. And I want to encourage us to do the same. Over morning tea, I want you to answer this question. So don't just do the small talk. If you had $500 to spend... Uh, that would co- so that people could hear about Jesus. How would you spend that $500? Brainstorm how you might use it. And then go away and brainstorm how you might use all of the stuff that God has given you. If you've got a spare $500, you might want to put it into that idea that you've just come up with over morning tea. I'd love you to go away and brainstorm how you might be shrewd for the kingdom how you might spend and use what God has given you. Now, in uh, verses 9 to 13 of the parable, in our last five minutes, uh, Jesus gives us four quick principles to bear in mind how we might be shrewd uh, for the gospel. I'm just going to rattle these four principles off quickly. So first principle is this. Uh, What we do with our wealth echoes in eternity. That's uh, what verse 9 is getting at. Uh, Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Uh, Jesus says, use your resource that he has given you to make friends. Not just be popular in your social circles down the sailing club, uh, but be friends, make friends that you will meet again in heaven. I want to ask you how you might do that. How might you do that with what God has given. You don't have to be rich to do this. The disciples were poor. Uh, I was uh, shamed by 
ashamed about my innovative, lack of innovation in my thinking the other day as I was chatting to a friend who's not a Christian. And she was, uh, I was talking about, are we really trying to work out how we um, involve ourselves in the community at Halloween? And she says, do you know what I do? I just take the barbecue out the front of the house and cook sausages for all the kids as they go around uh, trick-or-treating. What a great idea so that kids would know a Christian in their street. She's not a Christian. But what a great idea that that came from this unbelieving friends. They all know her. They all love her. Uh, what we do with our wealth echoes in eternity. Second principle uh, from verses 10 and 11. What we do with our wealth is a test for eternity. Let me read Luke 16, 10 to 11. Jesus says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? I wonder whether you realize that your stewardship of your money and your possessions is a test of your faithfulness to Jesus. I wonder whether you realize that. It was new to me as I was studying Uh, studying this parable. Very challenging, isn't it? You see, the Bible says in Revelation that one day Christians will reign with Jesus, that we will inherit the world, we will inherit everything uh, with Jesus. And our days on earth are, if you like, our internship to test our future, future faithfulness for reigning with Jesus. Incredibly challenging, isn't it? I want to encourage you to test yourself. Uh, Print off your bank statement and put the numbers and the names next to the transactions, the numbers of the amount of people that heard about Jesus because of that bit of money that you spent or the the name of the person who who heard about Jesus because you bought them dinner, because you invested in them. Test yourself. And see how faithful you are to Jesus now. You will one day inherit the earth with him. I was uh, once had the privilege of putting a PowerPoint presentation for a board meeting for a group of guys in London. Now this board meeting and this presentation had no spreadsheets. It had no uh, graphs or numbers. It just had photos of people in this presentation. Hundreds of people from all around the world. Uh, This group of uh, businessmen, this board meeting, uh, were a group who were gifted at making money. They were gifted at making money, but yet they did not love money. They'd all decided that they would live off their basic salary and give their bonuses away. And so they'd invested in the work of Jesus. And this board presentation was the fruit of their investment, of men and women around the world telling people about Jesus. What we do with our wealth now is a test for eternity. Third principle, uh, what we do with our wealth is what we do with God's wealth. Uh, Have a look with me at at verse 13. It tells us that our money is not actually our own. And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? I wonder whether you knew that. I wonder whether the money that you have, the shirt on your back, the possessions in your possession is not actually your own but God's. Do you see them as your own? And when we do, it changes things forever. We, don't, we are no longer the owners, but we are the stewards, the managers who are charged to be 
shrewd. I met a woman um, a few years ago who had two houses, one posh house in a posh suburb, a smaller house in a not-so-posh suburb. And do you know what she did? Uh, She sold the posh house in the posh suburb, and she gave the money to a Bible college so that they could increase uh, the number of men and women uh, that could be trained to tell people about Jesus. Millions. I asked her, how could you do that? How could you just uh, give away millions of dollars? Well, she said, Andy, this money's not mine. I was born into it. It's not my money. It's God's money. And training people to teach people about Jesus is far better than me uh, sunning it up in a posh suburb in in Sydney. Now, not all of us will have that capacity, uh, but we can all have that heart. It is God's money, and he wants us to be good stewards of it. What we do with our wealth is what we do with God's worth. Uh, Briefly and finally, fourth principle, what we do with our wealth reveals who we serve. I wonder whether you noticed the hardness of verse 13. No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. Very confronting verse, isn't it? Impossible to serve both God and money. I heard one preacher say that if you're trying to serve money and Jesus, don't bother. Don't bother trying. It will make your life miserable. Give up on Jesus and serve money. You're better off doing that than trying to serve both. But that would be a foolish thing to do, wouldn't it? That would be a foolish thing to do. Our bank statement, our diary, our priorities, our daydreams, our worries, our loves, our sources of fulfillment all reveal who we serve. So let me again ask you to do some self-diagnosis and ask yourselves, who do I serve? Now, uh, there is a danger when we do that that we will be filled uh, with regret. We're filled with regret and remorse. But the gospel is not about regret, but about repentance. So let me ask you, let me encourage you uh, to, uh, to, to, to follow who you love. John Wesley said that the last part of a man to be converted is a man's wallet. wallet. That's a confronting thing, isn't it? Uh, you may know that you love Jesus, but yet everything in your life may say the opposite. Let me encourage you for your life to follow where your heart is. If you know that your heart is following Jesus, let your life and your wallet and all that you have follow Jesus uh, with him. Now, if you know that you don't love Jesus and you have got him as your hobby, let me encourage you by where Jesus is going in Luke's Gospel. He is going to Jerusalem to die on a cross, to give everything for you, so that you would not know eternity in hell, but you would know eternity with him in heaven and the joy of serving him now. He has freely given that to you and offers it to you. And all he says to you is, come, follow me. We don't have anything that Jesus hasn't already given us. I want to finish just by reading the first bit of Psalm 116, and it really sums up the right response to what Jesus has done for us. How can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise.